Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. All right, well, after uh, two weeks away, uh, we are back into the book of Isaiah, and so that is exciting, uh, right? There we go. All right. Michael promised me that you guys would be super excited for Isaiah, so that, that's the only reason I took the passage on. There we go. Michael's always excited for it. All right. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 29. Uh, And as you're turning to chapter 29, I'm going to give us just a little little bit of context or reminders about the book of Isaiah in case we've forgotten. Uh, We have been in the book of Isaiah, I think, long enough to start recognizing a few patterns. And I'll point out three of them that I think are important for today. There seems, uh, number one, there seems to always be a place in Isaiah. Isaiah always seems to be talking to a city a region, a group of people. Number two, God is often casting his judgment over that place. And number three, sprinkled within that judgment is often glimmers of hope. And today's chapter 29 continues the pattern of a place mixed with judgment and hope. But what makes this chapter particularly interesting, I think, is that the place we're going to be talking about is none other than God's home on earth during this time. Today, we're going to be looking at the city of Jerusalem. And in chapter 29, God's judgment focuses on a particular sin found in other places, but particularly Jerusalem, and I think also a sin that continues to plague God's chosen people, us Christians. Today, we're going to be talking about spiritual pride. Now, before moving into chapter 29, I'd like to give just a little bit of context or background information on spiritual pride. First, the definition, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. And uh, if you're not taking notes, you might want to take notes. Uh, So the definition that I came up with today to help us understand what I'm talking about is that spiritual pride is the exaltation of I at the expense of God. And I think it's important that we note two things in this definition. Uh, Number one, as I go up, number two happens, God goes down. And so anytime that I think I know better about what to do with my time or my finances, what I'm really doing is saying that I know better than God. I go up at the expense of God. And to help us better understand spiritual pride, I will also be comparing it to cancer today. I think there are some important similarities that will help us understand spiritual pride a little bit better. I think both spiritual pride and cancer are sneaky. In other words, they're sometimes difficult to detect, and of course, they're both dangerous. Sometimes we don't know that we suffer from either of them until it's too late. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. He says pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. In other words, spiritual pride like cancer grows. It consumes that which is good. 
Today, we're going to look at what Isaiah is trying to teach us about spiritual pride. And to do that, I'm going to break chapter 29 into three sections. You can see them here. In the first eight verses, I'm going to talk about the uh, consequences of spiritual pride. In other words, how does God feel about it and what does he do as a result? Then we'll look at the second eight verses and we'll talk about the symptoms of spiritual pride. We'll put a mirror up to ourselves and see if we suffer from any of those symptoms. And then finally, the third part is that glimmer of hope, right? The third pattern that we recognize that happens a lot in Isaiah. And we're going to look for the cure for spiritual pride. And to do that, we will, of course, look to Christ. So let's get started with the first eight verses. I'll read from my Bible. You guys can read from the screen or your Bible. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you. And you will be brought low, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest, and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her in her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. And when a hungry man, as, as when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he is drinking, but awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. All right, so let's look at the consequences of spiritual pride. To do that, we'll start right in verse one. It's up on the board here. And we'll start with the first word in the first verse. The word is ah. Now, when I first read uh, this translation of uh, Isaiah 29.1, I was a little bit confused by that word. I wasn't sure whether it was like an angry, like ah, Ariel, or like a disappointed ah, Ariel, or something else. Uh, so I began to look into it a little bit, uh, and what I found was that most translations will translate that first word into woe. You can see a list of them here, uh, all highlighted, a bunch of woes. Those are just a, uh, some of the translations. There's more that use woe. And I think the word woe can help us understand the ah a little bit better. The word woe, by definition, means great sorrow and distress. And when uttered by God, usually in the form of a warning or a judgment, it basically is telling us that God is not happy. And so whatever comes after the woe will usually indicate the reason for his unhappiness. So if we look at verse 1 and what comes after, we see highlighted at the bottom there, it says, add year to year, let the feast run their round. And... If you're a bit confused right now, then you are probably like I was. I wasn't quite sure what to make of this. It seems like they're having an annual feast. 
Does this really deserve a woe? I mean, if you look at the rest of Isaiah, you have cities all around Jerusalem, places that are sacrificing children, worshiping false idols, doing all sorts of evil. They deserve the woe. Jerusalem is just having an annual feast. So why do they deserve the woe? Well, on the outside, these annual feasts may seem harmless at worst, maybe even God-honoring at best. But I think on the inside, these feasts are just another opportunity for people in Jerusalem to exalt themselves at the expense of God. We could even imagine the people of Jerusalem leading up to these feasts saying things like, oh, let's buy all sorts of food this year so that our neighbors will know how holy we are. It reminds me a little bit of a testimony that I heard a couple months ago. It was in small group. Shout out to small groups. If you're not in one, join one, because then you get to hear good stories like the one I'm going to tell you. Uh, this is a testimony from Brother Eric. I think he's here. There he is. Uh, he was uh, a couple months ago, as I was just starting to prepare uh, this lesson, he tells this story in small group about growing up in a traditional Chinese Malaysian household. And every year in his household, his family would celebrate the Qingming Festival. Did I say that right? All right. And uh, during this festival, his family would create these paper altars, and these altars were built as an act of devotion towards his ancestors. And as the years went on, these altars would get bigger and bigger, and it would represent that his family was becoming even more and more devoted to, towards the ancestors. Some family members even boasted of their devotion. However, as Eric got older, he noticed that the same family members who built these big altars and boasted of their devotion were growing more and more busy to actually be devoted to their living ancestors. These were the same people when his grandmother was ailing and she needed someone to take her to the hospital. They were the same ones who had excuses like, well, I'm too busy. And so this is a good example of the type of empty tradition that upsets God. Externally, when people were watching, Eric's family members, just like the people in Jerusalem, were ready to show their faith. But internally, when true devotion was required, there was nothing. This is similar to spiritual pride. Our outward devotion does not match our inward devotion. All right, so now that we know a little bit about what angered God, let's take a look at the actual consequences. What did God do. For the sake of time, we're going to look at the next three verses together, and you will notice three different colors. I'm going to make three points about these three verses, starting with the yellow. The yellow highlights are telling us what God does as a result of the spiritual pride. These are his actions. I will distress Ariel. I will encamp against you. I will besiege. Now, I did not go to seminary. I am not classically trained, but I Pretty sure that this is not a good sign when God starts using war imagery against you. I think we can all agree that God is not happy with the people of Israel or Jerusalem. Now, the orange focuses on the actual people. And what do they do as a result of God's judgment? What happens to them? And again, I think we see something really interesting here. Their voices, which I imagine were once boisterous and loud and confident at these annual feasts, well, look what's happened to them. There's moaning, lamentation. Their uh, speech has been bowed down. They whisper. 
Their speech is now ghost-like. The voices, verse, say, uh, verse 4 says, literally come from the ground. This is a divine humbling. And then finally, the blue part here is an interesting metaphor. At least I think it's interesting. And I think it tells us kind of what God is trying to do in these verses. Uh, you see uh, in the blue, the word she there, that's referring to Jerusalem. And the word Ariel, while not all commentaries agree, but uh, many of them suggest that in this case, Ariel should be translated as altar hearth or an altar. So in other words, Jerusalem is like an altar. That's what the blue is saying. Okay. Now, what do we know about altars? Two things. Number one, people bring sacrifices to the altars in the Old Testament to glorify God. And number two, they usually do that as an atonement of sin. So in other words, uh, Jerusalem will eventually atone for their sins. And don't miss what's happening here. God is reversing spiritual pride. During their annual feast, they wanted to exalt themselves at the expense of God, but the metaphor tells us that God is ultimately exalting himself, glorifying himself at the expense of them. This is divine justice. Now, a quick note on the final four verses of this section. I don't have them up here, um, uh, but I'll, I'll just make a quick note on that. The last four verses of the section, God is reminding Jerusalem's enemies that even when God's people are forced into humility, even when they falter or fail, God never does. And I think this is as true today as it was thousands of years ago at this time. Uh, you could just look at the last hundred years, even the last couple of years. How many times has the world prematurely predicted the demise of the church based on the foolishness or pride of its people, right? We've seen uh, leaders in different parts of the church world kind of falter and fail and people point fingers and snicker. But what God is doing in the final four verses is reminding us that he alone is sovereign, eternal, and righteous. Okay, so that's the first eight verses. What do we make of this section full of woe and judgment? What's our big takeaway? Well, clearly God does not like spiritual pride. That's the obvious thing. And if we still don't know, we can just look at Proverbs 16, 5. It says, Every, uh, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, I think maybe I could have just started with that and skipped the last 10 minutes, and then we would all agree. Pride is bad. So our takeaway, though, is simple. God offers his people here two choices. Either bring yourselves low for his glory, or he will do it for you. Unfortunately, though, it's not that easy for us. You see, pride after all, is Satan's response to our good works. And for many of us, the deeper we walk in faith, the more fruits of the Spirit that we exhibit, the more susceptible we become to pride as we begin to think that our good works justify ourselves. So then how do we know if we are carrying this sneaky sin with us? Let's turn to the next eight verses to find out. I'm going to be starting now in verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, 
Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by man. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Let's look now at the symptoms of spiritual pride. Another similarity between spiritual pride and cancer, I think, is that neither are easy to detect. Some people don't realize they have cancer until it's too late. One reason for this is that it is often hard to detect because there's different symptoms for different people. Some people, when they first experience uh, the, the, the symptoms of, of cancer, maybe they're overly tired. Other people um, maybe lose weight. Some suffer joint pain. Um, it is common for people to carry these different symptoms for months, years even, before they finally get tested and discover the root of their problem. Spiritual pride is similar. There are many ways a church can be impacted by this disease. Therefore, we must be proactive in searching for the symptoms. So today, Harvest, what I want to do is I want to, in love, put a mirror up to our church body and see if we can begin to root out any of the symptoms of spiritual pride. Uh, in verses 9 through 16, Isaiah begins to detail the people's behavior in Jerusalem, and in doing so, I think he's going to show us six symptoms of spiritual pride. And as I go through these, I want to challenge you to think through yourself, your actions, your thoughts, and see if you can find any symptoms. So we start in verse 9 here, and uh, here you see talk of blindness and drunkenness. And so the question is, symbolically speaking, what do the blind and the drunk have in common? And the answer, I think, is that both have impaired judgment. And so the first symptom, you can see it written at the top of the screen here, is that spiritual pride can make you lose good judgment. Now, I think it's important to note that the Bible radically redefines what good judgment is. The wisdom of God often seems foolish to the world and vice versa. Those things that seem like common sense or wisdom in the world is often foolish in the eyes of God. Remember, this is the God that tells us to love our enemies, to forgive every transgression, to pick up your cross, to lose yourselves, to dine with sinners. These ideas seem counterintuitive, and when we do not humble ourselves to the will of God, it is easy to convince ourselves that we know better in any particular situation. Some of us might think, or some of us, all of us know, that God wants us to give generously, that tithing is an important part of our spiritual faith. But oftentimes we think to ourselves, but I really need the money, so uh, you know, let me pay a few bills. Let me, uh, you know, let me take a couple of weeks off and I'll, I'll get back to it in a couple of weeks. Or some of us know that we should forgive everyone. 
But we think to ourselves, well, this person, though, they haven't shown any remorse for their transgression. And until they do, they won't get my forgiveness. Or some of us know that we should all be serving the church body. But we think to ourselves, yeah, but my weekly work schedule has just been so crazy, and I just need a day to take off. If any of these ideas seem like something you might think, you may suffer from the first symptom. Let's move on to the next one. In verse 10, we see godly people. We see the prophets and the seers who can no longer see God's will. The second symptom, again, written at the top then, is that spiritual pride can make you blind to the truth. I found a quote online, therefore I know it's true. It says, we don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. I'll say it again after my drink of water. It's important. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. And studies have actually proven this quote to be true. So the internet was right. A 2006 experiment done at the University of Virginia on the East Coast of America found that we often see the world not as it really is, but on how we feel. For example, this is true based on the study. Walking destinations actually look farther away to those who are tired, to those who have exercised. And so when they see a hill and it's only a kilometer away, they'll look at it and they'll say, oh yeah, that's about two kilometers away, right? So they actually see things differently. Another uh, example from this study, a hill looks steeper to those who have been exposed to sad music. So if you're just feeling down, the task at hand looks more difficult. The study also found that as with so many of life's challenges, a hill looks less steep when you're standing next to a friend. In other words, the way in which we see the world around us is greatly impacted by our internal perceptions. And so if we suffer from spiritual pride and we see ourselves as being exalted, then we're going to see the world differently. When we perceive ourselves to be greater than we really are, we might see sin in others before we see it in ourselves. We might see non-Christians as inherently worse than us, and we see our works as justification for our goodness. Harvest, if you ever see the world in this way, you may need a spiritual checkup. Moving on to the next two verses. In the next two verses, 11 and 12, we have two types of people, but both of them with the same problem. They can't understand God's word. One person can read but can't open the scroll. The other person just can't read. And this brings us to the third possible symptom of spiritual pride. It can lead to spiritual illiteracy. Let's unpack this one a bit, starting in verse 11 and those that actually read. Now, some of us in this room, like the people in verse 11, actually read God's word. Some of us even study the Bible. But its meaning may be sealed from our hearts. These people might quote scripture with ease, but they struggle to bear the fruits that Galatians 5 speaks of. In other words, they love debating scripture, but they struggle to love others sacrificially. So how does this type of thing happen where you're reading God's word, but it's not impacting your heart? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but I have a question for all of us to consider. Why do you read the Bible? Do you read it to win arguments, to seem smart? in your godly discussions? Do you read it to prove your point about end times revelation? 
or maybe to satisfy some fear of not being a good Christian. I am convinced that if you approach God's word with spiritual pride, that its power will be sealed from you, like the people in verse 11. Now, on the other hand, it's also true that in uh, just like the people in verse 12, it's, yeah, stay, yeah, still here, uh, some of us simply just don't read God's word. And I want to think about this for a second. And, and I'll throw myself in, into this group here of sometimes I struggle to have that daily routine. There's some days where I too am guilty of this spiritual pride, but I, I want all of us, including myself, to really think about this. We have the wisdom of the living God, the God who speaks worlds into existence, the author of our salvation, his soul-quenching truth, his blood oath promises, sitting in a book on our nightstand or on our shelf, and we get up in the morning or maybe in the afternoon and we walk by that book and we think to ourselves, eh, I think I can handle this instead. What could lead to such a foolish decision? If this is not at least in some part due to spiritual pride, then I don't know what is. More of me, less of God. Moving on to verse 13. You guys are still with me, right? <laughs> Isaiah 29. All right. Now, verse 13, uh, perhaps this is the most popular verse in chapter 29. If it looks familiar, it's because we saw it in Mark 7, which was our scripture reading this morning. When Jesus was approached by the Pharisees in Mark 7, and the Pharisees asked him, why don't your disciples wash their hands when they eat? Jesus answers the Pharisee by quoting these exact words from verse 13. Jesus says to the Pharisee, because this people, meaning the Pharisee in his context, draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Now, this seems like a really harsh rebuke for someone just asking if you washed your hands. Imagine if we did this every time our mothers asked us, right? It would not be appropriate. But in saying these words to the Pharisees, I think Jesus is identifying the fourth uh, symptom of spiritual pride. It makes us blind to empty religion. This symptom is the one that made the Pharisees care so much about washing hands. It's also the same symptom that brought about God's woe earlier in verse 1. So what is so bad about these empty traditions? Simply put, I think they are an assault to God's glory. It defies the very purpose of our existence. Remember, man was created to glorify God. However, those that pursue empty religious traditions are using God's good name to glorify themselves. Now, if you've been in church long enough, you probably have a story involving this type of spiritual pride. When you realize that someone's outward devotion doesn't quite match up with their inward devotion. And if you're like me, your experience leaves quite an impression on you. My first encounter was when I was a teenager. I had just started attending a new church, and the teenagers in this church were known in the community for their devotion to God. They all went to church three times a week, including youth group and then music night on Fridays. These students, literally, they would preach in my high school parking lot after school on most days, preaching the gospel. They shunned popular culture with their dress and their actions. They were a group that stood apart from the world. 
So it was unsettling for me to see them one day, the new teen in church. They were away from the other adults, adults in church, mocking a blind man by tripping over furniture behind his back. Even at 16, with my immature faith, the irony of this scene was not lost on me. These teens laughed and mocked the type of man that Jesus loved and healed. In other words, they honored God with their lips. Remember, these were the teenagers preaching in the high school parking lots. But their hearts were far from Christ on this particular day. Now, on the surface, this may not seem like a, a, a really bad sin. We could even say that maybe it was just the foolishness of young people. But I don't think God sees it that way. Their commitment to the religious traditions throughout the week did not cancel their sin on that day. In fact, I think it had the opposite effect. In chapter 29, God makes it painfully clear that when his people claim his name but recklessly misrepresent his nature, it's more than just offensive. It is the type of spiritual pride that steals his glory. Harvest, let's check ourselves of this symptom. Let us never be known as a church of traditions. Let us instead be known for the way that we reflect Christ in our daily lives. Harvest, let's pray that our Christmas party on Saturday never becomes like the annual feast mentioned in verse 1. Rather, let's get excited for the opportunity on Saturday to come here and serve one another and love one another as Christ does. And on the following day, let's pray that as we bring food to the nearby Afghan community in need, that our hearts never become like the Pharisees in Mark 7. Rather, let's get excited for the opportunity to humble ourselves and love our neighbors. Moving on, verse 15. Now, in this verse, to me at least, the people's condition starts to feel a little bit more permanent. In the earlier verses, remember, there was temporary blindness and drunkenness. But here, I think we're starting to see a pattern of sin. The people now hide their deeds or their plans and work in the darkness. There seems to be a pattern of sin. The fifth symptom is spiritual pride leads us into darkness. We say and do one thing in the light of day, but behind closed doors, we think to ourselves, look at the bottom there, who sees me? The answer, of course, is God, but our spiritual pride is too busy protecting our exalted selves, and so we don't care about the judgment of God. We care about the judgment of others so that we can stay exalted. To justify our sin and stay in the exalted position, we begin to compare ourselves, usually to people that are worse off than us or different. And we begin to think, we're not so bad. And if someone calls out our sin and tries to pull us into the light, we get defensive because our exalted position is suddenly threatened. Harvest, do you ever compare yourself to others? Do you ever get defensive or angry if sin is pointed out in your life? If so, you may need a spiritual checkup. And finally, verse 16, our last one, the total destruction of our spiritual self is complete. Our sin has infected our minds, it's corrupted our soul, so much so that up is down, right is wrong. We refuse to recognize the supremacy of God. We are more impressed with what is made, us, than the maker himself, God. We have removed God from his throne, and we sit there on the throne all alone, not knowing the sickness that we actually carry. The final symptom of spiritual pride is that it can blind us from God's order, and I think it's the final stage of pride. We could call it stage four spiritual cancer. 
And when we find ourselves here, death is not far away. We need treatment and we need it fast, but what can be done to save us? And that brings us to our final section. So let's read some more. Starting in verse 17, we are again in chapter 29, verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel, and those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. This is the word of the Lord. All right, our final section, we're going to try to find the cure for spiritual pride. Before we get into it, my final cancer analogy, there's one more similarity between cancer and spiritual pride that I think should be recognized, and that is the cure. Both cancer and spiritual pride, in order to be rid of them, require death. For cancer, cells, the very essence of all living things, must die. Chemotherapy kills those cells. Think about that for a moment. Something living has to die in order to be free of cancer. It's no different for our pride. The penalty of our pride is made clear in the earlier verses of this chapter. Like all sin, the penalty is death. Remember, the people of Jerusalem are surrounded and besieged in verse 3. They are compared to an altar where dead things are brought to God in verse 2, and they are made ghost-like in verse 4 of this very chapter. Their future is bleak. Their enemies approach and surround them. Death is all but certain for the people of Jerusalem in these chapters. Dramatic pause, but there is hope. Our hope is not that God will lessen the penalty, that one day he'll wake up and say, you know what, I had it all wrong about spiritual pride. It's actually not that bad. No, our hope is in the fact that the penalty for this abominable sin will not be required from us. But how will that happen? The final eight verses give us plenty of hints about this hope that we have. Now, starting in verse 7, at first read, verse 7 seems a bit insignificant or maybe confusing. At least that's how I felt when I first read it. However, the more I looked at things and studied, I realized that verse 17 is essential to unlocking the meaning of the last section, and I would say the entire chapter 29. So let's look at it closely. Let's look at uh, the first two lines in particular. It says, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? A couple things to note here. Number one, in the first line, notice that Isaiah is speaking about a time in the future. 
right? So he, he's alive about 700 years before Christ, and he's saying, isn't it in a little while when something will happen? So what is the something that will happen? Well, our first hint is Lebanon. Now, most commentaries uh, would agree that Lebanon is a symbol for the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, the polytheistic neighbors to the north of Israel. And it's also interesting that Lebanon, even today, you can see it on the, the, their flag, they're known for their great cedar forest. And so uh, what is going to happen to Lebanon in a little while in the future? It says that the cedar forest will become a fruitful field. In other words, in other words, it'll become a place ready for harvest. And vice versa, the very last line there, the fruitful field, which was and is at this time Jerusalem, will one day be regarded as a forest in the future, no longer producing fruit. In other words, God is planning to do something amazing in the future. He is going to bring a great harvest of souls from the Gentile world. Well, how is this going to happen and what will it look like? Verses 18 and 21 give us some more hints. And now we start to see the glimmers of hope sprinkled throughout the judgment. This is the part that's exciting. Almost every idea mentioned in the four verses, 18 through 21, point to the future work of Jesus Christ. Let's see what we can learn about the future time for Isaiah's people. Isaiah says, in the future, in verse 18, the deaf shall hear. Well, 700 years later, Jesus heals the deaf. We saw that this morning in our scripture reading. Mark 7, he heals the deaf. And did any of you catch where the blind man was healed? I'm sorry, where the deaf man was healed? It's a little detail, and it's really cool. He was healed in the city of Tyre, a major city in Lebanon. You guessed it. <clears throat> also in the future, also in verse 18, the blind shall see. Well, 700 years later, Jesus heals the blind in Mark 8. In verse 19, the meek shall obtain fresh joy. 700 years later, Jesus is quoted in Matthew 5 when he says the meek shall inherit the earth. In verse 19, it says the poor shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. And in Luke 16, 700 years later, in a little while, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom of God. Isaiah paints a picture in the final two verses of this section, verses 20 and 21, of a new coming kingdom, a new Jerusalem, where the oppressors, Isaiah says, will be cut down and come to nothing. Who then will be the king of this new kingdom that hates oppression? The final three verses in chapter 29 give us our final clues about this coming king. Now it gets really exciting. The coming king of this new Jerusalem, this place where the deaf will uh, be healed and the blind will be healed, where oppression will be no more, the coming king of this place will be someone connected to the promises of Abraham and Jacob, says verses 22 and 23. The coming king will be someone who makes the world stand in awe of the God of Israel, someone who was a part of God's long-forming plan, someone who seeks to bring those who go astray into the kingdom. And don't miss the very last line of the very last verse. It will be someone who can cure spiritual pride, making those who murmur or complain humble themselves and accept instruction. That someone, harvest, is Jesus. That's where you say amen. All right. Amen. Today, we, the church, 
are the Lebanese forest. We are the heirs of Abraham and Jacob's promises. We are the new Jerusalem, but we are also human. With the same tendency to think that goodness comes from our works, the same tendency towards empty tradition, the same tendency to read my phone more than I read my Bible, and to think that I know what's best for my life. Harvest, do not think for one second that the judgment of God is not upon us for these sins. The words of Proverbs 16.5 are as true for all of us in this room today as they were for the Israelites 2,700 years ago. The difference, though, is found in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the work that was done on the cross. In Isaiah, God besieges his people for their pride. On the cross, God besieges his only begotten son for our pride. In Isaiah, God brings the people of Jerusalem low. On the cross, Jesus is brought low for our sake and our sin. And in Isaiah, the people's proud voices are brought to a whisper. But on the cross, Jesus whispers his final words on our behalf. It is finished. I started today's lesson telling a, a part of Eric's uh, testimony, hoping uh, that that story helped us recognize spiritual pride a little bit. I'm going to end today's uh, lesson with his uh, part of his wife's testimony, and I hope this story will help us have the right perspective on how to overcome spiritual pride. Excuse me. A few years ago, Ashley was diagnosed with cancer. At some point in her battle with cancer, her white blood cell count became critically low. The doctor warned her that going home, being around her family or any people might compromise her fragile immune system and come at the risk of death. At this point, the disease had already stripped so much from Ashley, her strength, her health, her energy, the things that had helped define her personality and shape her identity. And now the doctor's words threatened to take the last thing that she clung to for encouragement, her family. At that moment, Ashley recognized something profound, something that all of us in this room should also recognize today. She was never in control. Nothing was ever hers to begin with. On that day, Ashley made the decision to go home and be with her family. And to do so, she had to make peace with the fact that God alone is all-powerful. He alone would determine if she lived or died in the following weeks. He alone would determine and ultimately sustain her children and her husband were she not there. So she put everything she had into God's hands, her identity, her strength, her family. And she was wheeled out of the hospital to not strong enough to stand, to be with her family and to live or die in God's will. Harvest, let's learn from this. Let's strive to recognize our weakness in his strength. Let's not strive to be a church of perfect people. Let's rest in the truth that we are a church in desperate need of a savior. In a moment, I'll call the band up. I guess now I'll call the band up. And in a moment, they'll start playing. Now, <clears throat> when I leave uh, the stage here in just a moment, I'm going to ask the band to just play a chorus. And I want us to take just two minutes of a church as a church to collectively do two things. <clears throat> All we'll hear is the music playing. I, I won't be up here. So you're going to do this on your own. The first thing I'd like us to do as a church is to repent of our spiritual pride. I want us to repent of our empty traditions, our rote Bible reading, our tendency to compare ourselves to others, and our hypocritical nature. 
I would like us as a church to either fall on our knees or sit in our chairs and declare our weakness and his strength. Take a minute, everyone, please, to do that in a moment. And when you are done, I want us to do a second thing, and that is to rejoice. I want us to rejoice in the gospel, the work that was foretold by Isaiah, completed in Christ and promised to us. Let's rejoice that we serve a God that could condemn his people to death for their pride, and yet he chose instead to do this to his only begotten son, so that whosoever would call out to him in their whispers, in our weakness, would never die, but have everlasting life.